I hate to put people on the spot, so I gave Julia two minutes notice that I was going to ask her these questions. So Julia, would you come up here for a second? I have two questions for you. The first question is, when did you first suspect that God might be calling you into full-time Christian service? I was in high school. I was participating in Bible quizzing at the time, and we had a flourishing program, and we had a fantastic leader that worked with us, and I felt this deep, this deep sense within me that I needed to continue to dive into God's Word more and more and more. Um, and then the, uh, the applicability to the scripture that I was reading um, was also important to me. And I had also sensed at that time that um, while I was in high school, I was good at all of my classes. I worked really hard and got A's, but nothing that I was passionate about, nothing that I felt like I could go on and do for a, a career. And I said to my leader at the time, Carla, I said, can I just like do this church thing for the rest of my life instead of being a scientist or whatever? And she's like, yeah, of course you can. And so I um, had some further, you know, more in-depth conversations with her and with my youth pastor at the time and um, sensed that calling initially. And then, and then how was it confirmed? What things contributed to confirming that calling of God on your life? Yeah, so the, the confirmation was through further conversations with um, my youth pastor. The confirmation was through uh, doors opening for college at Eastern Nazarene College, um, doors opening for summer ministries, youth admission, other ministerial um, or uh, service-related opportunities that I had at the time, and then through um, continued prayer uh, with the Lord saying, is this right, is this right? Yeah, these doors are opening. Tell me a little bit about the confirming process through your assessment weekend experiences. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> that is my recalling that I like to say. I was here at MCN back in 2018, and we were here for my husband, not myself. I make that very clear. And uh, so one of the sessions, they, they um, send you around if you're married, you and your spouse, um, you sit in these sessions talking about spiritual formation, talking about uh, your marriage, talking about um, your calling. And so we sat in one of the Sunday school rooms up there, and uh, Lisa Morrison and someone else uh, were in the room, and typically the question is posed to the assessment candidate, um, could you tell us about your call? And then the posed question to the spouse is, how do you support your spouse in this call? So they turned to me, and instead of saying, how do you support your spouse, Lisa Morrison said, and you have a call yourself, too, don't you? Now, she didn't know me from Adam. I knew of her, and I burst out into tears because the Lord had already been working on my heart two months prior to that, um, saying you need to be quitting your full-time job at the time for Cox um, Communications and had been really stirring within me again. Um, you are called to ministry. You need to do more ministry. You need to really give your whole life over to this, um, where I had kind of swept it under the rug for a little bit. And so uh, in that conversation where she really didn't know me, um, she said the Spirit really drew her to ask this question differently. Um, and so instead of 
having the conversation over how I support my husband and having the conversation about my husband's call, the full hour session then turned to be a discussion over me and my call and how I needed to take steps forward in this calling towards uh, pastoral ministry. And so thus began the marching orders to look for um, seeking in front of the church board for a local license and then the steps toward district license and so on and so forth. Thank you. You can take that with you. There are two passages in scripture I'd like to focus on this morning. The first is found in Mark 1.14. It says this simply, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is an announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The time has come. Immediately, Mark writes, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their, na- their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. I've always wondered a little bit what Zebedee thought about that. His kids, who are supposed to be strong, vital members of the family business just sort of leave him behind in the boats with the nets. If you jump over to the Gospel of John in the first chapter, the 43 verse, 43rd verse, you read this. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. These two passages and others similar to them answer some questions for us. Some would say that in these modern times, we should just let the Holy Spirit work by himself and let people make their own choices when it comes to spiritual things. And, and while that is true to some level, I mean, we, we never coerce, we never manipulate, we never attempt to stress people into the kingdom of God. We don't do any of those things because Jesus didn't do any of those things. But that doesn't mean that we don't announce the kingdom of God by life and lip. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use our influence to invite people into the kingdom of God. And the second thing that should be obvious from these passages is simply this. God wants people to enter the kingdom. That's God's desire. He wants people to enter the kingdom. 
John the baptizer has been announcing that the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is here. And that he wants people to enter. He wants folks to understand that they are loved by God. And he wants to help them understand what the best ways to live are, which is life in the kingdom. And you might ask yourself, if those things are true, and they are, what exactly is our role practically in all of this? I mean, we could spend a lot of time today looking at scriptures that talk about calling the world to repentance. We can look at the places in the Bible where Jesus tells us to go and make disciples, like Matthew 28. We can look at passages where Jesus sends out groups of his disciples ahead of him to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. But what do all of those things mean for us modern disciples of Jesus Christ? And really, I think there are just two simple things I would like to say this morning. The first is this. God still calls people into special places of service. That still happens. I've told you my story on occasion before, where thinking through my high school years that maybe God was saying something to him, I wasn't really convinced that it was God talking. I remember the time I talked to the Lutheran pastor down the street. And I said to him, how do you know? I think I asked him instead of my pastor, because my pastor lived farther away. The Church of the Nazarene wasn't particularly close to our home, but the Lutheran church was right up the street. I said, how do you really know if God's calling you? And he said to me, well, you know, I'm just old-fashioned enough to believe that if you're going to be a pastor, you need God to call you into it. You need to hear from him. And years later, I went back and talked to him. I said, do you remember that conversation? This is after I've been pastoring 20 years. I, I went back and said, do you remember that conversation? He said, he said, I, said I thought you were just blowing smoke, he said. I thought you were just filling the time talking to an old person. I said, no, no, I was, I was honestly searching back then. I didn't, I didn't understand. And then I went to college, enrolled in a music degree rather than a religion degree. And it wasn't until after that was done and Nancy and I had been married for a couple years that God came back knocking again very strongly. And it was, Daniel, working for me is not the same thing as obeying me. And you know what you should be doing. And I'm going, Lord, I mean, are you sure? Because I wasn't really sure that I wanted to do that. And so I began fasting, and very quickly the Lord said, obedience is better than sacrifice. And, and I knew. I just know. I mean, I don't know if you have ever had the experience where you're, you're reading a book, and all of a sudden it feels like the words on the page are on fire, and you know that they are for you in that moment. When, when, we, went, when we left Virginia Beach to go to seminary, I had an experience like that. I opened a book by Eugene Stowe called The Ministry of Shepherding. And as I was reading the introduction to the book, this was a class to prepare for pastoral ministry, I'm reading the book, and these are what, this is what the opening introduction says. If there isn't a pressing reason why you can't drop everything and go to seminary right now, you ought to do that. And it was like, I mean, I was seeking, and in my seeking, I opened the book, the first textbook, and it says go to seminary. So I... You know, I crawl back to Nancy and say, Nancy, I mean, I don't know how to say this any other way, but, you know, this is what I feel. And, and she's like, okay. 
Am I telling the truth? <laughs> she said, I wasn't too happy about it. But um, God still calls people into very specific functions. And I'm, and I'm not saying for a second that um, all of those specialized services to which God calls folks are pastoral in nature. Some of them are. I mean, I've had the privilege, as Julia mentioned, to sit in about 20 years worth of sessions talking to young ministers who are telling the stories of their calling as they prepare for licensing in the Church of the Nazarene. And people get called from anywhere, from every walk of life. I've heard people called from the medical field. I've heard people called from special services in the armed forces. Uh, all kinds of places that people get called. And the callings vary too. I've talked to people who were called into compassionate ministries and who are running compassionate ministry centers now. I've talked to people who were called into mission service. I've talked to people who have told me that their calling was to finish their Bible training, then finish their internship and apprenticeship in construction because they believe God was calling them to a ministry of building on mission fields. And so they needed both the construction and they needed the theology together. And that's what God was calling them to. God calls us to all kinds of different tasks. I remember my mentor, Chuck Zink, talking about how he was called from social work. He was leading a group home somewhere up in the Boston area when he just felt very clearly the Spirit saying, yeah, you're doing a great job helping these folks, these young boys in terms of social work, but you're limited, aren't you? You need to be able to talk to them spiritually as well. You need, to, you need to take a step past that. And God opened up new doors for him. Some of the things that God specifically calls his people to do are to build up the church itself. I mean, I think you are aware that God uses his church as the major vehicle to draw people to himself. The church in scripture is called the bride of Christ. And it's called the bride of Christ because of the partnership and love that exists between Jesus and his church. When the church is operating appropriately, we are engaged in the mission that Jesus Christ announced. And you say, well, what does it mean operating appropriately? How does that happen and who is the church anyway? Well, simply, you are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the church of Jesus Christ. First Peter 2 reminds us that we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that we can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This Enterprise, this kingdom of God enterprise on earth rests in large part on the back of the church of Jesus Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And every person who steps into the kingdom of God steps into Christ's church. Every person. Whether you ever affiliate with any individual church, whether you ever affiliate with any individual denomination, whether you ever are a part of any specific ministry or not, it doesn't matter. You are the church. And I've asked folks occasionally, I mean, how do you feel about that? 
How, how, do you, how do you like that? I mean, you didn't get an option on that one. When you opened your life to Christ, He signed you up. He just volunteered you into the church of Jesus Christ. When your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, your name is written on the membership rolls of the church of Jesus Christ that has always existed and will always exist. And that brings, my friends, responsibilities. Brings responsibilities. You have responsibilities to God. You have responsibilities to other members of his church. You have responsibilities to the mission and work of God. You have responsibilities to the methods of God and the ways that he works in the world. To the message of God and the ways that he works in the world. I can remember back in the 70s. I can remember about that far for those of you who weren't born yet. Um, there used to be folks in airports that wore chiffon robes and tried to sell you roses. Or they gave you a flower and then asked for a contribution. We called, we nicknamed them Moonies because they were followers of a guy named Sun Something Moon. And when I was in college, I did a little research paper trying to understand what did the Moonies really believe? What did they think? And one of their core doctrines was called the doctrine of heavenly deceit. I thought that's an interesting doctrine. What's the doctrine of heavenly deceit? Well, it's okay to lie to people to get money from them because the church needs it. That's what, that's what they taught. That's what they believe. The doctrine of heavenly deceit. When you get signed into the kingdom of God, you are responsible not only for the mission of God, but for the method of God, which says no to deceit. Paul tells us again and again, all that we do is above board. You can see nothing's hidden. There's no secret knowledge. There's no secret code, no secret handshake. It's all open to everyone. Jesus Christ has died. He died for our sins and he wants to invite you into his family that you can live forever with him. And everything we do is subject to the test of honesty, integrity, openness, and transparency. That's who we are when we step into the kingdom of God. God is at work. God uses his people and his institutions to bring folks into his kingdom. So how does that work practically here? Well, if you think about it for a moment, if you think about the typical ways people come into the kingdom, uh, these things seem clear to me. People connect with each other through programs in places with the assistance of leaders. Now, when I say programs, programs can be either very formal or very informal. Uh, informal programs sort of look like this. You invited someone over to your house for dinner. That's an event. You created it. You brought someone in. You wanted to connect with them. Um, there's an informal program that happens every day at the end of school if the weather is halfway passable. And it doesn't even have to be halfway passable. And that is, there's a group of people who take their kids over to the playground, they sit at the picnic tables, and they talk and they share their lives while the kids run around and scream on the playground. It, it's not a formal program. It's just Christian folks sort of gravitate 
over there. And the kids want to run a little bit after school. And so they talk and they share life together. That's, that's a program, an informal program that happens here every school day. We gather together on New Year's Eve and we play games and interact with each other. That's a formal, an informal type of program. There's no great agenda planned other than for the people to get together and talk about their lives and share the goodness of God. And sometimes folks who are not in the kingdom come to those things and hear the work of the kingdom through these informal programs. But the minute we intentionally start to get more than two or three people together, the processes of encouraging and supporting one another become more institutional, more formal programs, a church project, if you will. I mean, and we need these kind of projects, these types of institutional programs, because for most of us, the work is too hard and too comprehensive for us to handle on our own. We need someone to teach our kids Sunday school classes. We want someone to help organize the party that we're going to attend on a particular day. We want help to keep this particular method of interaction going because life is busy and it's hard for one person to do everything well. And, and institutions that embody the mission of God and help us stay on track with the work of God in the world are really, really important for us. Here at this church, locally, we support a variety of institutions that are even larger than our local church. For example, we support the work of Nazarene Compassionate Ministries International. This, this work has given millions of dollars to help people in times of natural disasters around the world. And one of the reasons the Church of the Nazarene is so effective at disaster relief is because we have this network of thousands of churches around the world who are in every part of the globe and when a disaster hits that part of the globe the church at large can funnel resources to that area through its local churches so after they had that devastating fire in maui you remember a few uh, months ago the church of the nazarene mobilized and and the nazarene districts like in california they immediately responded to the local churches in maui the, the Nazarene churches that were in Maui. And then Compassionate Ministry newsletters spread the word of the disaster, and many of us were able to send resources, many of us who couldn't go there at the time, to help fund that work. I, I spoke to the pastor of that church maybe a week or two after the disaster. He told me about all that they were doing, how their church was literally housing many, many people, feeding them three meals a day. I talked to him I talked to his secretary maybe three months after it happened. And they were just starting to transition from daily feeding to a weekend meals and having distributed food to people throughout the week, lots of water distribution. And he talked to me about the projects for long-term sustainability of compassionate ministries in their area that this local church was doing. They had property there. They had already gotten all the zoning permits to build six temporary housing uh, buildings, small, almost like tiny home kinds of buildings on their property so that whenever there was any disaster or need, people could live in them temporarily until they could get back on their feet again. And he talked about the, the warehouse type building they were putting up to store resources because the people in the Maui were going to need help 
for more than just three or four months. And so they were collecting resources from different places around the world to distribute to these people who were in need. And, and that kind of institution matters to us because we live in solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world all the time. And so this institution is worthy of our support. And that's why we support it. We support Eastern Nazarene College and Nazarene Theological Seminary because they are preparing folks to lead us in ministry. Eastern Nazarene College is our discipleship program for our teenagers. This is where we hope they will go and continue the growth in Christ that they got here at Manchester Nazarene. So we partner with these educational institutions. We work to support the work of Nazarene Mission International because we have this great network of missionaries around the world who are proclaiming the gospel for us. And, and not only do we support them financially, but through Work and Witness and other programs, we go to encourage and support because these institutions, as large and sometimes as distant as they might feel occasionally, are our expressions of participating in the mission of God around the world. And they do so much more than any one of us can do individually. You probably remember from the 125th anniversary celebration of how deeply rooted the history of Nazarene Missionary International is in our local church. How the, the president of Nazarene Missionary, Nazarene Missions International, for the first 35 years of its existence, was a woman who was a pastor of this church back in 1900. And so we're deeply invested in these kinds of ministries around the world. But our first mission is our local mission. And here in Manchester, we have bound ourselves together for the good work of the gospel. Locally, we encourage every church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in this particular place, we have inherited amazing tools and advantages that will enable us to seek to do the work of God in this place. This building as difficult as it is to maintain, allows us to do all kinds of ministry activities. And remember, people connect through programs in particular places with the assistance of leaders. Unless we do the work to maintain this building, in time we will lose it. Every generation has to pick up the work left to it by previous generations. And caring for this amazing gift from our parents and grandparents is very important work. It is worth the investment of our time and our energy in the same way that our parents and our grandparents invested their lives in providing this place for us. But it's not just this location. It's, it's the locations of all the churches in our collective. It's what we do here that matters. In addition to worship, which is primary to everything else we do, we meet together to learn and to share our lives. We meet together to encourage one another here in this place. We meet together here to instruct our children and to demonstrate what life, what abundant life in Jesus Christ looks like to them. This is the place where we work together, live together, learn together, and so place is sacred and vitally important to us. But don't forget, people connect through programs 
in particular places with the assistance of leaders. Running programs, caring for the property, requires leadership. Say, Pastor, are you, are you trying to like call us into like working on the facility and leading church programs? I mean, does Jesus ever call his disciples to create institutions? Well, I believe he does. I believe very specifically that Jesus calls his disciples into founding institutions. Because after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he goes to the shore, he stands there while they're out fishing. He gives them a little fishing advice, which turns out to be true. He's cooking some fish and bread on the fire. And the disciples come in and they, they don't really know what to say. They know it's Jesus, but it's a little spooky. The, the gospel writer tells us this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to them after his death and resurrection. And, and after they've had a little bit of awkward breakfast together, Peter and Jesus sort of walk off to the side. And Jesus says to Peter, as you know, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus three times says to Peter, feed my sheep. Well, what does it mean to feed my sheep? Is Peter going to be able to feed all the sheep himself? I don't think so. He's, he's being given a calling to lead in the effort of proclaiming the good news to the whole world. It's, it's a calling to leadership among the disciples. You know elsewhere in the scripture, Jesus says, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's, there's leadership being infused into Peter's life so that he will create, by the work of the Holy Spirit, the church that we know today. He, he creates, well, how does it happen? I mean, it's not too far into Acts. Acts I think it's before Acts 10, where the disciples are sitting around and the people say, you know, we have a problem here. Our widows are being neglected by the people who are serving the daily portion of food to the widows. And so we need some help. And the apostles say, well, we need to give our attention to preaching and studying the word. We'll need some more leaders, right? And so they call some guys and they say, you guys are going to be deacons. And you're going to be responsible for distributing this food because there's more work than the present leaders can do. So we need more leaders. And you remember, they called people to wait on tables who were full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. So like even to serve dinner, you had to be full of the Holy Spirit. You had to have the grace of God to enable you to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. And, and if people connect through programs in specific particular places through the assistance of leaders, it seems to me that God is continually calling leaders up to serve him. He's continually calling leaders up. Almost every program, almost every ministry Certainly every church facility requires the attention of and labor from leaders if they're going to prosper. These days, the word leader feels almost like asking folks to be participating in a four-letter word kind of function. 
Like, I'll help, but don't ask me to be in charge. Right? Here's the problem with that. I think God's calling some of you to be in charge. And you can throw up your hands in resignation and say, I don't feel like I have the gifts to be a leader. And I will respond to you that God provisions everyone he calls. God enables everyone he calls. And you say, well, I don't know if I want to be a leader. I mean, expectations are really high of leaders. And and criticism is so prevalent these days because, you know, it's so much easier to tear things down than it is to build anything. And and the work is hard, often with very little thanks. And, and, And you know, Pastor, our time is valuable and there are other competing claims on our time. And I say to you, so what? When God calls, I mean, that's... That's the end of the discussion, isn't it? When God says, I need you, we should be saying, okay, here I am, all of me, right? That's that's the only response to that. And so I'm wondering, who is God calling within our fellowship to be leaders? Who's willing to say, I don't have it within me, but if you'll train me, if you'll help me, I will, I will lead. I will lead here, or I will lead there, or I will lead in this program, or I will... We have a, a little ongoing program and staff meeting on Tuesday mornings where Chima and Julie and, and Aaron and I, we sit down and we, we talk about um, training issues because, frankly, Julia and Chima are not quite as old as I am yet. I thought maybe you'd smile. I mean, because often, I think, I think I heard them talking about me behind my back once and they used the term ancient of days. But they may have been talking about something else. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know for sure. But, but we have what I call a training manual. And the training manual that we, we open up and we, that we look at just lists all the different things that pastors have to deal with and we just talk about them. We open the scripture, we read about them, and we talk about them because it's important to pass things on, right? And if we want the Church of the Nazarene here to be vital in the next 20, 30 years, the act of training folks who are volunteering for leadership must start today, right? We've got to invite people into leadership, train them, help them, and you know, Wednesday nights is a perfect time to do that. We have an ongoing running program. There are opportunities to serve as assistants in leadership. We've got all kinds of opportunities for service here. A Christian school gives us so much scope for work that we need leaders, godly, spirit-led folks who will stand up and take a project through to its conclusion. Not every area where we need leaders requires a three-year commitment and all kinds of hours. It might just be that we need someone to figure out what's the best way to trim this kind of shrub. And we say, we need a leader to help us do that. And someone who's a leader is the one who takes responsibility to figure out what the right thing to do is, helps understand what we need to do, and then helps people learn how to do what we need them to do, and then leads them in doing it. There are so many tasks like that. And I honestly believe that God is calling us all of us to work in his kingdom and to volunteer for leadership. I would add one more thing 
that arises from the passages that we read. The first thing I talked about was how in our modern sensibilities, we're reluctant to use our influence to lead people to Christ. We're afraid that today we will get censured. We will get called out and slammed on social media if we're just publicly a little too Christian or if we encourage others to follow Christ. But, but I would say this to you. In the passages that we read, it was clear that when one person saw Jesus, their response was to go and find their closest friend, closest relative, and bring them along. That's why Nathaniel, sitting under the tree, is quickly encountered by Philip. Philip goes, finds Nathaniel, and says, Nathaniel, you can't believe what we found. And he brings him to Jesus. If you read one of the gospel stories of the calling of Simon Peter, it's Andrew who is the disciple of John the Baptist. And as soon as John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Andrew goes and finds Simon Peter and says, Hey, we found him. We found the Messiah. And friends, you and I, have the obligation to use our influence to bring the people we love to Christ. That is a leadership function in the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to be prepared now and always to exercise that leadership function in the kingdom. Will you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit when he speaks to you, when he calls you, into service? Have you heard the voice of the Spirit calling and you, you think you ought to, but you're not sure? Here's what I would encourage you to do. If you think you ought to, but you're not sure, invite another friend from the fellowship to pray with you about it. And start a conversation about that. Start praying together. Because friends, the Church of Jesus Christ operates by her leaders and her citizens who do the work of Christ in a particular place, in particular ways, assisted by her leaders. And so you're being invited in. You're being invited in to step in. Some of you are already doing an amazing job at this, and I am so grateful. I, I don't know if you've uh, seen any of the records of the school board right now. So the school board meets every month. And there's a young gal who comes to every one of the meetings, types up all the minutes for the general session, executive session, contacts all the board members when the minutes are done, archives them into the digital saved place where we put all of our records and assists us. And every month, Danielle's there to do that. And she has stepped in a, to a leadership role in the Cornerstone Christian School, because I believe it's something that God's called her to, and she believes in the mission of the school. That's the kind of example we need, right? Folks who are going to step into leadership and say, I'll be responsible, I'll see the task through, I want to see God's kingdom come through the ministries of this local church and the local community. And I encourage you to follow that example. It's not an easy example to follow. But the Spirit provides, and the Spirit leads, and He will help us honor Him by the way we work together to see His kingdom come.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we open ourselves to your spirit today and we ask for your help to serve you in ways that are pleasing to you. You have gifted us in amazing ways, Lord Jesus. You have given us tools for ministry. You've given us great leaders in the congregation that can teach us how to lead. You've supplied our needs, Lord, and we ask that from this place of favor, you would use us to build your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to humbly before you seek your face and say yes to all you call us to. For we know this will please you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'd invite you to sing a a closing song with me. Would you stand uh, with me while we sing together? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow.
the invitation of Jesus Christ, may we all pick up our crosses and follow him to the glory of God now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.